Well, good morning. It is a rare opportunity that I get to come and to deliver God's word to such old people. <laughs> Pastor Cheryl said, tall people, but to me, you're a whole lot older than what I have been used to the last couple years. But it's not just that uh, um, you are just a lot older than uh, the people that I usually get to talk to. Um, I'm here to represent not only uh, KidZone and uh, PFN, but just uh, cannot wait to have this opportunity to open up God's word with you. Let me just add, if uh, you were here last week and you saw me sitting in service, I was not fired as a children's pastor. I was on vacation and I had strict orders from the wonderful volunteers down in KidZone that I was not allowed to step foot in the KidZone hallway whatsoever. I was just supposed to be on vacation. So I did go to the well and grab some coffee. So I was down there by there, but I didn't go down into KidZone. And let me tell you, I did not like not being with my friends. Not at all. I missed my friends in KidZone uh, so much. I got to see a couple of them uh, this morning already, give them high fives in the hallways. I missed them. I missed their smile. I missed their energy. I missed their stories. I miss those kids. I've grown to absolutely love and adore your kids. But don't get me wrong. This is an incredible opportunity for me to address tall people today, all right? But uh, kids, if you're watching this later or whatever, I miss you and I'll be back next week. So if, uh, if you're here today and you have brought your Bible, then go ahead and open up to John chapter 12. That's what we're going to be going through today. And uh, I get the opportunity to preach right along with what Pastor Brock has already delivered up to us up to this point in the book of John. And this Sunday, it brings us up just about halfway, a uh, little more than halfway in the year. But in many ways, this is the absolute halfway point in the book of John. The first, the first uh, 11 chapters have John, of John have been called by some scholars as the book of signs, the book of, of signs. Seven signs that Jesus has done, seven miracles that Jesus has uh, uh, completed that point towards him bringing a new creation, that the old has become new. And uh, these seven signs, if we were to go through them, uh, chapter two, Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding. Uh, the healing of the official son was in John chapter four. The healing of the paralytic in John chapter five. The feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water in John chapter 6. Uh, the healing of a man that had been born blind from, been, has been blind from birth in John chapter 9. And then last week, Pastor Brock talked about the seventh sign, the ultimate sign of the old has now become new and the raising of Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. So here is John chapter 12, stuck right in the middle between the book of signs and what scholars call the book of glory, which is the remainder part of the story. Now we're going to see Jesus uh, entering into the Holy Week as he goes into Jerusalem from this point on, where he is arrested, where he is tried, where he is crucified, where he dies on a cross, where he is, where he is resurrected, and then where he ascends back into heaven in glory with God. Therefore, the book of glory, the last half of John. 
But in order to understand what's happening here in John chapter 12, we need to look back at John chapter 11 just a little bit. Some of those verses that pastor did not go over last week. So if you just look back, maybe a page or so, John 11:45 says this. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, raising her brother Lazarus from the dead, put their faith in Jesus. Pastor reminded us last week of the miraculous sign uh, when Jesus made a dead man become alive and Lazarus walked out of his grave. But before Jesus showed up, many people had come to comfort Mary and Martha as, you know, if you had lost a loved one or if a loved one was sick, many people would come and they would comfort you and they would visit you. And the same was the case with Mary and Martha. And many people had come. And now that he had passed, even, probably even a greater crowd were there and they were mourning and they were there to comfort Mary and Martha. And so that means that when Jesus showed up, there was already a very large crowd that had gathered to witness the resurrection of Lazarus. And God's word tells us that many people believed after they saw that seventh sign of the old becoming new. And I think it's fitting here that this last sign of Jesus was the ultimate old to new story, right? Jesus took that which was dead, gone, finished, the King James Version says stinketh, and made it alive, present, renewed, and glorious. Aren't we happy that Jesus is in business of making the old new? And so after a dead man is made alive, many people took notice of Jesus. I guess uh, feeding 5,000 people from a sack lunch or healing somebody that was blind was not enough. They needed this last sign to, in order to follow him. But a lot of people are taking notice here. In verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. There are many people that were amazed. They couldn't believe what Jesus was doing. There were a lot of people that started believing in Jesus, but some of them were what we call in kid zone tattletales, right? They went to the Pharisees. They weren't happy about this whatsoever, or maybe they thought they would get favor with the Pharisees by telling them what he had done. And so the Pharisees called a meeting with all the rest of the religious council in Jerusalem. What are we going to do with this guy? We have to respond to him in, in some way. What is going to be our response? How can we let this go on? Many people are believing in this guy. There's people that are starting to follow him now. How can we let this go on? And they thought to themselves that if we don't do something about this, then Rome is going to come in here and they're going to do something about us. And they thought so highly of themselves that if they said, if we're gone, then the whole nation will disappear. And if we're gone and if we're not in charge anymore, then the whole temple will disappear. And so the high priest at the time, Caiaphas, I imagine he stood up in the amongst of all of the uh, chatter around the table and he said to them, you know nothing. Isn't it better for one man to die than the entire nation to perish? And it seems ironic to me because wasn't this God's plan from the very beginning? Yes, 
Yes, Caiaphas, it is better for one man to die than the rest of the world to perish. You got it right, Caiaphas. You're not the first person with this plan. This plan has been in existence from the beginning of time. God and Caiaphas had the exact same plan, but they had vastly different reasons for making it. One man wanted to see Jesus dead so that the old would be saved, so they could keep doing what they've always been doing. But God's plan was for Jesus to die so that the old would become new and different. If this were an old Western, if you were watching a Western about this time, the sheriff would come out, the sheriff would walk out uh, of the, uh, the jailhouse and he would put up that wanted poster, right? He would nail it to the saloon or wherever he would nail it to. And there you would see on there with a picture of Jesus and it would say, Jesus wanted dead or alive, well, preferably alive because we, we want to kill him later ourselves. But anyway, wanted, Jesus, dead or alive. And so the line has been drawn here. This is the last straw. What are we going to do next? What is uh, our decision? What do we do now that he's starting to gather all of this attention? This raising of Lazarus was the final event that caused that religious class to put a death warrant out on Jesus's head. And so after this, Jesus removed himself for a little while. He went basically into hiding. We don't know for how long. We know that he left town and just that Jesus returns the night right before the Jewish holiday of Passover. In fact, six days before the Passover. So now we are up to John chapter 12. Read with me in verse one. It says, six days before Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived. Not where Lazarus died, but where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus raised from the dead. And right now I'd be thinking, what are you doing, Jesus? What, what is going through your mind that you would return to the scene of what the Pharisees would call the crime? Why would you go back to Lazarus' house? Of all places to show up again, why would you go back there? Oh, you're serving dinner? Okay, well, what are you serving? Maybe I might show up. Maybe I am a little bit more like Jesus than I thought, right? So it says, verse two, here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. And I think, well, of course, this is the least that you would do, right? That you would serve a dinner. Uh, this is the least that Lazarus and his sisters could do. We're to invite someone over to hold a celebration at their house for the man who raised you from the dead. This is the least that you could do. Now, personally, I would have picked Texas Roadhouse or Olive Garden or something like that, but they didn't. They decided to invite the Jesus over to their house. I suppose dinner at your house is sufficient, but this wasn't some just ordinary dinner where people just showed up. This wasn't a haphazardly planned little luncheon. The scriptures tell us that this dinner was to honor Jesus. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Lazarus and his sisters, Martha and Mary. 
We do know that they owned a burial tomb because Lazarus was inside of it, not too uh, far in the future or in the past. We don't know a lot about them, but we know that they're probably a family of some sort of wealth and some sort of means because they owned a burial tomb and only wealthier people owned that. We also know that if they knew Jesus was coming to eat at this celebration dinner, they probably would have invited a few friends over. It wouldn't have been just Jesus, Martha, Mary, and the disciples. They would have invited a whole lot of people over to their house. This dinner would have been more than just the few. There would have been many people there. And so let's go on. Scripture says, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Now, this is how I imagine the scene. It'll probably be different. As Pastor Cheryl has said many times, when we get to heaven, we'll get to answer, have a whole bunch of question and answers with God, I believe. Maybe this is one that I'll, I'll ask. What was it like that day? But this is now what I imagine. I imagine a big room. And in the middle, there was a table. Now, this wouldn't be a table like you sit in and you eat uh, lunch on. It would probably be a lot lower to the ground, a foot or two off of the ground. And there would be pillows placed all around this table. And there were people lounging around this table. Jesus was there. And I imagine Lazarus was right next to him. And then all the disciples there. And then there were other people all around this table with a room full of people, probably men, lounging around the table. And most likely, they would have had their pillow really close to the table. They would have had their feet stretched out behind them. Now, to me, this sounds like a very uncomfortable way to eat a meal, but it served a couple purposes in their time. One, uh, lounging like that allowed for more people to be around the table. You could get a whole lot of more people in if you laid down as, as, as opposed to sitting down in front of the table. But the second most important thing probably is it put your feet as far away from the table as humanly possible. And as you probably realize, the people of biblical times didn't walk around with Adidas or Nikes. They didn't have Timberland or Doc Martens to wear around. They had sandals on dirty, stinky roads, which meant they had dirty, stinky feet. And so it would be customary uh, during this time to at least be offered a basin as you went into somebody's house to wash your feet. A house like Lazarus' house might have even hired somebody to come in to wash all of their guests' feet as soon as they entered the house. Nobody fought over doing this job. And so here we find Martha. Martha, again, in the kitchen, she's getting things ready. She's serving people. In another story, in an earlier occasion, Martha gets a little hotter on the collar. She gets a little outraged as she sees that she is the only one that's working. Her sister Mary is seemingly doing nothing, just sitting there at the feet of Jesus again. And so far, we haven't heard from Mary in this story at all. Dinner is being served. There's no mention of her whatsoever, but not for long. Mary does show up in the story, 
I imagine she comes from a back bedroom, perhaps, and read the word here. It says, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. Now, let's stop there just for, for a second. This was not something that you went and you picked up at Walmart, right? It wasn't like, okay, Old Spice, uh, Brute, um, Stetson, oh, yes, nard. No, this was not a Walmart cologne or a perfume. This isn't something that you would even buy at Macy's or in a, a higher-end store. This perfume was made from a plant that is only located in the mountains of India called the spikenard plant. And to come across it was very rare. And the perfume that was made out of it was the most expensive that you could imagine. This was the best of the best. You couldn't get a better perfume than this. And Mary had a pint of it. Guys, if you've been to Macy's and you ever bought cologne for your lady and you, not the, not the cologne, the perfume kind, you know, it doesn't come in this big pint-sized jar, does it? That's the Walmart brand, right? But expensive perfume comes in these itty-bitty tiny little bottles because a little bit of it goes a very long way. Like I know anything about putting on perfume, but... But there was a pint of this. You remember when we were in school and you'd get those uh, cartons of milk for, for lunch that nobody could open right? Do you remember those things? That's a half pint. She had two of those, a pint of the most expensive perfume imaginable, a pint of the best stuff possible. It goes on, then Mary took a pint of Purinard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. What are you doing, Mary? I don't think we even understand just how scandalous this is. I don't think we even have a, a beginning of an imagination just what was going on at their house that day. A couple of things were happening here. One, where was Mary? She wasn't serving. She wasn't helping cook anything. She wasn't doing what was expected of her. Martha is the one off serving. And I bet, I bet Martha has planned this entire thing. I bet Martha was the one that sent out the invitations. I bet Martha was the one that cooked everything that day. And by this point, she's a little more than ticked off at her sister. I think that's what was happening here. But I think Martha was doing everything she could and everything she knew how to do for Jesus because she wanted to repay him just as much as Mary. And it's at this point... Imagine she is probably shooting some glares at Mary's way, right? Oh, here we go again. Look at Mary just sitting there. Oh, good. Now she's finally getting up from the table. I bet she's going to come and help me. Nope, she's off in the bedroom. What is she doing? What, what does she have now? What does she have in, in her hands? Oh, oh, no. No, Mary. No, put that back, put that back. You know how expensive that is, Mary. 
she didn't do what I think she just did. Oh, no, you didn't, Mary. And then Mary reaches up and she undoes her hair. Now, I don't think she did a sexy head whip like that, but, <laughs> but she undoes her hair in front of everyone. We don't get how scandalous this was. The shame of doing something like this. A woman with her hair down in front of guests. <gasps> now, I don't want to sound crude here, but Mary might as well have just walked out completely naked out of her bedroom. That is the level of scandal that is going on here right now. It seems preposterous to us, but that was the culture of the time. And then she took this expensive perfume and she poured it on his feet, on his feet. Now, why feet? Why is it significant that John tells us that she anointed Jesus's feet? There's a reason here that, that John makes mention of Jesus's feet. First, the, the feet were the lowest part of the body, literally and figuratively. You couldn't get anything dirty or nastier than feet. But I love what John Piper has to say about this. He says, the, low, lowest, the lowliest part of Jesus is worth more than the greatest gift of mankind. The lowliest part of Jesus is worth more than the greatest gift of mankind. It's as if Mary is saying, this is the best thing that I possibly have to offer. This is the most expensive thing that I have. And the most expensive thing that I have in my possession is worthless compared to the lowliest part of Jesus. She is very, very literally saying, I would rather have a tiny part of Jesus, a tiny, stinky, filthy part than anything that this world considers valuable. And think why Mary would be doing this. Remember the scene. Martha is off doing exactly what Martha does. She's cooking, she's cleaning, she's serving. Martha gives what Martha is gifted to give. Mary is an all different sort altogether, isn't she? Obviously, serving and cooking is not her thing. Perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps Mary's a terrible cook. Maybe one of the best gifts she could give Jesus is staying out of the kitchen, <laughs> right? Perhaps uh, the last time somebody came over to the house, she missed everything up. She spilled all the drinks and she tripped while she was serving soup or something. I don't know what's happening, but we know Mary is nowhere near that kitchen. We know Mar Mary doesn't do these sort of duties, but we always know where to find Mary. She is always at the feet of Jesus. In another story, while Mary is busy, or while Martha is busy taking care of all the details, we find Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking in every single word that he has to say. 
Last week, we learned that as Martha was busy, or as, as Martha was going out to, to meet Jesus, she came back to tell Mary that Jesus was there. And where did we find Mary next? At the feet of Jesus. And then today during dinner, when there is presumably a million other things to do and a million other things to take care of, where do we find Mary again? At the feet of Jesus with her hair down, pouring an expensive bottle of perfume and then wiping it with her hair. I bet Martha passed out at this point. And if we go on, it says she poured it on Jesus's feet. She wiped her feet, his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The house is busy. The house is crowded with people and everyone notices the devotion that Mary was showing to Jesus. Everyone notices the gratitude of Mary. You couldn't miss it. As if pouring the perfume wasn't enough, as if letting her hair down wasn't enough, as if cleaning it up and wiping Jesus's feet with her hair wasn't enough. Now the aroma of this perfume is filling the house. This is the point where I personally would have to leave the house because I'd be having a ginormous asthma attack, right? I can't even walk past the perfume store at the mall without wheezing and needing an inhaler. But apparently people back then didn't have quite as reactive of airways. But the fragrance fills the entire house. I don't believe for a moment that Mary meant to cause a scene. I believe she was doing exactly what she thought she should do. Mary is devoting herself to Jesus. She's giving him the greatest act of worship she could ever imagine. And the entire house notices what's happening. There were people around that day that sat there in stunned silence. There were those that were getting up. We're going to start to do something about Mary. Something has to be done with her. Mary has gone completely over the deep end this time. There were probably those that were elbowing Lazarus or elbowing Mary and saying, you've got to do something about your sister. Look at her. She is completely nuts. She is embarrassing us now. She is, she is uh, making a scene. Everyone in the house noticed Everyone saw Mary pour the perfume. Everyone saw her put her hair down. Everyone saw her wipe Jesus's feet. And if you missed it, you can now smell it. Everyone was outraged, but only one person spoke up. Verse four, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. A year's wages. You know, if you think about it, Judas's argument isn't a bad argument, right? It kind of makes sense, really. I mean, Judas does have a point. 
At the very least, Mary wasted expensive perfume. At the very least, she put that perfume on somebody's feet. But at the worst, that money, that perfume could have been sold and she could have done something seemingly far, far greater than pouring it on somebody's feet. But that's not Judas's argument. He does make a good point. But his reasoning in making that was completely off. Verse six, he did not say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. His objection seemed very valid. He had a good point, but the motive behind it made his objection unfounded. It's not that Judas cared about the poor. He just wanted the chance to skim a little bit of the money off of the top when Mary sold that perfume. He just wanted a little bit more of himself, for himself. But I believe his objection uh, goes deeper than that. Judas's heart did not allow him to see an act of extreme devotion as an act of love. Isn't this the case in our society today. We love walking down the middle ground, don't we? We love it in the middle ground, right? We used to see people running around the, all of the aisles of the church as they were so blessed. We used to have people waving their handkerchiefs in the air and the entire congregation lifting their hands in worship, but not anymore. Don't make a scene. Shh, 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 shh. Let's be proper. Let's be quiet. We love that middle ground. We hate to see, seem like we're going too far to one side or the other. If you're here last Sunday night, Pastor Josh said it beautifully. We love complacency in our society so much. We love to walk down the middle of the road. We love to keep things comfortable. And eventually when we walk that comfortable road long enough, we have a well-worn groove that's so easy to stay in. And Pastor Josh said, that's not a well-worn groove. It's a rut. It's a spiritual rut that we find ourselves in. Mary gave back to Jesus the only way that Mary thought was extravagant enough to repay Jesus for what he had done in her life. He raised her brother from the dead. He raised her brother from the dead. Isn't that worth a pint of expensive perfume? Of course it is. It's all she had. It was everything that she had. And she was willing to give it to Christ. Now, let me ask you, if this were happened today, would you see that as an act of extreme devotion or would you see it as an act of extreme deviance? If someone was blessed by the Holy Spirit and they started yelling amen or running up and down our aisles or waving their handkerchief or whatever it would be, would you be equally as blessed or would you say, keep it down? Don't raise your hand in church. Shh, shh, shh. But Mary's act was so much more than an act of extreme thankfulness or even an act of extreme love. This was a prophetic gesture that recognized Jesus for who he actually is. 
In the Bible, there's a few people that were ever to be anointed. If you were sick, you would go to church and you would be anointed uh, for healing. But uh, this other group of people are also anointed. Kings were anointed when they became king. When a man would become king, they were anointed as king. Could it be, could it be that this was not just an act of extreme devotion. This was an act of the ultimate recognition of who Jesus actually is. Perhaps Mary was the only one in the room that day who recognized Jesus as the true king. And she couldn't care less what anybody else in that room thought of her. Only Jesus a year's wages, nothing compared to what Jesus had done for her. Causing a scene, who cares as long as somebody gets to know Jesus in the process. Risking becoming scandalous, who cares? Who cares if the world thinks that you are scandalous because you worship and follow Jesus Christ? Who cares? Because guess what? If you're a believer in Christ today, you are already scandalous to this world. You are already scandalous to them. You believe in a man who turned water into wine, for crying out loud. You believe in a man that can make hungry people full from a sack lunch. You believe in a man who can make sick people well. You follow a guy that can cause blind men to see and lame men walk and dead men to talk. That's who we believe in. That is Christ. You are already scandalous for what you believe. So my question as we close here today is very, very simple. Are you scandalous by how you act? Are you scandalous by how you act? because Jesus is already giving you everything that he had to give. There's nothing left for him to give you. Are you scandalous by what you give him back? Do you give him the least or do you give him all? We come to church and we are very, very good at talking the talk, but are we good at walking the walk? What is your response to what Jesus has done in your life? And I don't know if we took the time here to go through the congregation and have everybody say something that Jesus has, has done for us. I guarantee you by the time we got done, we would be so blessed by it. We wouldn't have time in both of our services to complete the list. So what is your response what is your response to what Jesus has already done to you? And if you're here today and you're, you're, you're just kind of wondering about this whole Jesus thing, or if you're watching today and you're not really sure what this Jesus thing is all about and you're not really following him, I'm glad that you're here. Or I'm glad that you're watching today. But I know that Jesus has worked in your life too. And I pray today that the Holy Spirit would open up your eyes to all that Christ has already done for you.
And if you're here today and you've been coming here from the beginning of time, I pray that our eyes would be opened up so that we would see exactly what Christ has done for us and not respond with the minimum, not respond with the middle ground, but be brave enough to respond with the scandalous because you already are for who you believe in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible story of of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. But Lord, this isn't their story at all. It is your story. And Lord, we recognize that you are the one who came back to the scene of the crime. You are the one who came back to recline and to eat with your friends and to spend time with them because you love them so much. You are the one who did all of these miraculous signs. And you are the one that we get to respond to today. Lord, I would pray that you would speak individually to every single one that is here. Lord, that you would speak individually to every single person that is watching on our live feed or recorded days from now and watching on Facebook or our website. Speak to them today. Lord, search our heart and reveal to us what our response will be to you. You have given us everything. There's nothing left for you to give. What is our response to you? And Lord, as we look back of all the blessings and how you have worked in our lives, may we look forward to where we take those things today and beyond. What do we need to do? What do we need to give? Who do we need to tell? Jesus, I pray that you would be with us today and the remainder of this week, that you would allow your word to remain very present in our minds so that every time we see you work in our life, we know we have a response to it. Lord, what's our spiritual momentum going to be? We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.